0: That's a song I like to follow (laughs) with God's word as we together as a church behold his mystery. Would you stand with me? We're still in the book of Colossians, Colossians chapter three. We're going to finish up Colossians chapter three and move, squeak into chapter four. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's one in front of you in the pew. We're going to be on page 984, 984 in God's word. Colossians 3:22 through 4, 1. This is the word of God. Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Knowing that from the Lord, you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he's done. And there's no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly. Knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Let's pray. Fathers, we come to your word this morning. We trust in your goodness. We trust in your power to speak truth to our hearts and to humble us before you even when we look at a difficult text that makes no sense to us today. God, give us wisdom as we look to your word. Give us ears that hear your word as truth, and not something to be explained away. Work in us this morning by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. You can sit down. Y'all heard the phrase cognitive dissonance before? It's this idea in psychology where we have two conflicting core beliefs or a conflict between what we believe and what and what we do, and so to t- to be a salve to that, what we will do is we'll come up with some rationale to to ease the tension between those two things so for instance, if you're if you're watching garbage television and and you you know that it's bad for your soul, and yet you like it You like watching garbage television or movies or whatever. That's cognitive dissonance. On the one hand, something you know is, is harming you spiritually and on the other hand, you like it. And the common human solution, something that many of us do, all of us do, is we rationalize. We, we try to explain away that conflict. We'll say something like, well, I, I deserve to relax and do something enjoyable right now because I've worked hard today. So I've, I've earned this in a sense. Or maybe we'll... We're kind of holy, and, and so we'll say something like this. If, if I don't watch Game of Thrones today, I won't be able to engage other people at their level, right? I won't be able to, to say, have any meaningful conversation with anyone at the water cooler. There's, there's a conflict in values, isn't there? And there's a conscience-easing solution to that conflict. Well, we do this far more than we're probably aware. And when we get to a passage like our passage this morning, we're going to experience something similar. On the one hand, we know that slavery, owning another human being, is is wrong. We we know that, down to our core, we know that, that it's sinful. But then we read this passage, and it seems like Paul's condoning it. Or at least that he's okay with it. Cognitive dissonance, right? You see how that's happening here? We, we believe something that on the surface, on the surface, feels like it's actually in conflict with scripture. And at the same time, we we know we're supposed to trust that all scripture is totally true and trustworthy. And so in our minds, we we kind of get stuck. We don't know what to do. So what, so what we usually do when we look at a passage like this morning's is that we just, we just gloss over the fact that he said slavery. That we gloss over the slavery issue and we, and we retranslate the passage in our minds. See, we don't like that cognitive dissonance. It bothers us. It troubles us. And so we say, okay, okay, well, we don't have slavery anymore. What he really means is how employees should respect their bosses or how they should behave at work. Or we'll say, well, slavery probably wasn't as bad then as as it was in in America. We just make excuses for it. We we retranslate what's in the Bible. It's similar to what we do with passages about fearing God. Oh, I don't think the Bible really means fear God. (laughs) It means love him. And we retranslate fear into love because it doesn't fit with our concept of who we want God to be. We have this, this tendency to constantly revise God's word. Because we don't really think it means what it says. Or we don't like it. Or because it doesn't line up with our opinions or our intuitions. Church, listen. And I know this because it's true. God's word can stand up to our questions. It can stand up to our doubts. It can stand up to our disagreements and our opinions and our idols. Isaiah 40, verse 6. says, a voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry All flesh is like grass, and all its beauty like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. The word of our God will stand forever. The word of our God stands above our thoughts. It stands above our fears and our emotions and pop culture and politics and movements. The word of our God stands forever and we can trust it. That's fundamental. It's absolutely fundamental to the Christian life. Growing in Christ requires that we submit to God's word. And to do that, we have to trust it. And because that's true, and because God's word is authoritative, we can't retranslate it. We can't change it to ease our consciences. We simply let it stand for what it says. And we can let it challenge us, and we can let it change us. And as we put ourselves under the word of God, we put ourselves under the authority of God. And what happens is we, we die. We die to the desire to rule in God's place. So what we're going to do this morning is not try to Obi-Wan Kenobi or this is not the slavery you're looking for our way around the end of Colossians chapter 3. What we're going to do is deal with it. We're going to hit it head on. And, and we're going to see what in the world Why in the world did Paul write what he did in the way that he wrote it? His word will stand up to our questions. And from that, I think what we'll see is that while there is some application for us as as workers and bosses, that's, that's actually pretty minimal. That's not the point of this passage. This isn't meant to define the Christian work ethic. The greater application that we're going to see addresses how we as Christians deal with injustice in our lives. What we're going to see is that the gospel is the great equalizer. It's a comfort. It lifts up those who are afflicted, and it humbles. It brings down those who are in power, and through it all, Jesus Christ is glorified. In order to get there, we're going to have to address some of these issues, though, First question: When Paul addresses slavery, why doesn't he just outright condemn it? Why not? Think about it. There's not one word here in our text that we read this morning. There's not one word here that says, "Oh," and regarding slavery, Colossians, get rid of it." And we look at this, this text with our 21st century. Western, American eyes, and we say, why in the world did Paul not use this opportunity to write an emancipation proclamation to the Colossians? And our answer, because we want to defend God's word, because we love God's word, we, we, we fudge a little. And we say, well, he didn't do it because maybe slavery wasn't as bad. We talked about that for a moment, right? We know from, from history That slavery in the Greek and Roman system in the first century was organized in such a way that slaves could purchase their freedom, right? So not that bad. If they can purchase their freedom, they were fed, they were clothed, they were housed. Some were teachers, some were doctors even. Many scholars say that the majority of people in the Roman Empire were slaves, the majority in this huge empire. So it must not have been that bad, right? Actually, it was bad. It was really bad. Slaves had very few rights. They became slaves, usually because they were prisoners of war, or they were born into slavery, or they were captured by by pirates and sold at the slave market. Some of you just stopped thinking, what's for lunch? Did he say, pirates? Pirates? and you're confused now, and those of you who already heard pirates are thinking, now what's for lunch? Let's just focus. So (laughs) focus with me. Some, Some became slaves because their own parents sold them into slavery. Think about that. They sold their children into slavery. Some were slaves because they had no other way of providing for themselves. And so they had enormous debts, and they sold themselves into slavery. But no matter how you look at it, Roman slavery was slavery. One human owning another image bearer of God. It was a wicked, wicked institution. And it was perpetuated by human sinfulness. So when we compare what we know about Roman slavery, Greco-Roman slavery in the first century, and we, and we compare it to what, how we understand The American system, just a couple hundred years ago, not even 200 years ago, perhaps the biggest difference is really only that our slavery, American slavery, was race-based. We justified enslaving Africans because we wrongly believed that they were inferior, subhuman, The Roman Empire was just as wicked, but they were an equal opportunity in slavery. They'd take anybody, regardless of race. And because their system was not race-based, they were more likely to view their slaves as fellow humans, not three-fifths of a white man, the way that we did. But the Roman system was still atrocious. Husbands and wives were sometimes separated from one another. Kids born into slavery could be taken from their mothers and sold to other households. Female and child slaves were often sexually abused by their masters. Slaves in the fields, in the agrarian context, were overworked and underfed. Slaves took the most dangerous jobs in that world. They were often on the front lines of the battlefield. They were often the ones first in the mines and the most dangerous places. As an institution, even Roman slavery was unjust. It's always been unjust. And so it's a fair question. Paul, why didn't you speak against this? Clearly. Imagine if he had. How I wish, how I wish that there were, there were a more clear, bold command against it. Hundreds of thousands of lives could have been saved. Our denomination as Southern Baptists, the Southern Baptist Convention, took Paul's silence as license to endorse slavery in the southern states. In fact, through Through a twisting of scripture, they argued that not only was slavery acceptable, but it was spiritually advisable. It was a God-ordained institution, they said. That's that's us. Our convention, our denomination. We were founded in 1845 when we split off from from the abolitionist Northern Baptists who rightly believed that slave-owning was sinful. And what did Southern Baptists do? They chose to perpetuate this institution. And so they split the denomination in order to support their sinful, slave-holding church members. Fear of man. Don't want to lose those tithes, do you? And because of that mentality... If, you, if any of us were to go back in time and go to a Baptist church in the South in the early 1800s, this is what you would have seen. White church members sitting in pews like these and black church members sitting along the back wall or in a separate room and they're attached to one another and to the wall with chains because they were the property of the people in the pews. And the slave owners in the church would say, what we're doing is good. Because if it wasn't for us, these people would never be a part of a church. They'd still be in Africa worshiping idols. And they'd use texts like the passage we read this morning. And they'd say, if what we're doing is wrong, why didn't it say so? And while that's true, that's true. This is a part of our heritage, and we have to deal with that. And that's true then. And today, if you talk to a non-Christian who who hates Christ and wants nothing to do with God, they would look at a text like this, and they'd say, see, the Bible condones slavery. And then they'd say, therefore, it is antiquated, antiquated It's antiquated. It's irrelevant. It has nothing, nothing at all to say to our context today. So why should I believe anything else that it says? And this is what, I don't know how many non-Christians you interact with, but these are the questions they're asking about our Bible. You see why we can't just gloss over this and say this is talking about workers and bosses? You see why we can't mitigate this by downplaying the wickedness of slavery? We have to deal with it. We have to deal with it because our forefathers dealt with it sinfully, and the world is asking questions. So what we're going to do this morning is walk through this passage together like we would any other text of Scripture. We're not going to do anything different. We always, always first look at the people that it was written to. We look at the context. We look at the historical context. And then we get an understanding of what the purpose of these writings are to those people. Right? It's written for us. Still applies to us today, but it's written to the Colossian church. So why did Paul write what he did to the Colossian church in their context? From there, we try to understand what it means. And then lastly, we seek to apply it to our own context. We don't skip steps. Let's first look to Colossae back in the first century, okay? In the Colossian context, slaves would have been, would have been just as much a part of the household as children and moms and dads. That's why this passage is given to us in this Rules for Christian households. They were a part of the household, they belonged to the family. They were cooking and cleaning and making clothes and tutoring the kids and caring for the kids and going on outings with the kids. They were a very visible and integral component of of the households in Colossae. And in the Colossian church, it's likely that the majority of the church members would have been slaves, or at least former slaves. So so in the same way that that Paul's addressing husbands and wives who belong to the church, and children and parents who belong to the church, he's just matter-of-factly addressing slaves and masters who belong to the church. Because they're also in the household of Christ. And they are also to reflect the glory of Christ in their lives. Now remember this. Also Christians in that day were a very, very tiny minority. That's actually the case in all of the letters of the New Testament. Any book of the New Testament that you read is written to a very small minority of people. We often confuse our time and our place with theirs. And we shouldn't. Because w- now we look at Christianity and we look at the reach of Christianity and we realize we have a lot of influence. We have a lot of power. We have a lot of say in what goes on in our country. But we need to be realistic about these people and to whom the letter was written then. So we're talking a church, this church in Colossae, is maybe a hundred people. All right, so just try to picture that. You've got one Christian church in this city of, of, of thousands and thousands of people. So when you think about this letter that we're studying, recognize it wasn't written to the rulers of the city. It wasn't written to the governor of the province. It wasn't written to the movers and the shakers in the community. It's written to this little ragtag group of people. And they're poor. And they have zero influence in their community. And they're probably gathering in somebody's home on a Sunday night after work. So they've been working all day. They, they get to church in Mr. Smith's home. And they, they read this letter that Paul's written to them. So this is their context. Try to put yourself there. And they're, they're a diverse group. Remember, they've barely, they're barely learning how to be the body of Christ together. There are Greeks with them. There are Jews with them. There are barbarians with them, or the group of people called the barbarians. There's Scythians with them. There's slaves. There's free people. So when Paul addresses them, he doesn't doesn't address them as he might address the mighty Southern Baptist Convention or the Pope in Rome. Instead, you see this this humble letter. It's written to a, a powerless people. And this is what the letter says. This is who Jesus is. This is the message of the letter. This is who Jesus is. He's the one who's reconciling to himself all things. He's the image of the invisible God. He's the creator. He's before all things, and he's making peace by the blood of the cross. And this is who you are, Colossians. You were alienated from God. Now you've been brought near by Christ. You were in rebellion against God, and now you've been reconciled in Christ. You were a part of the domain of darkness, and you've been transferred into the kingdom of light. And God did all that for you for his glory. And now your entire life is bound up in Christ. And when he returns, then you'll finally see. Then you'll finally see who you really are in Christ. And because you're in Christ, this is where we got to chapter 3. Because you're all in Christ, you're all one in Christ. Slaves, free, Jew, Greek, and so on. Those earthly distinctions are of no account in the body of Christ. Altogether, you form Christ's body. And in order to be unified in that one body, body, you, you have to reflect this new identity. And how do you do that? Well, you set aside your old self, the old selfish self. All the anger, all the malice, all the backbiting that gets set aside and instead you put on Do you remember this? You put on kindness and meekness and humility and patience and compassion. And that aspect of who you are is to extend into every area of your new lives, including your homes. Husbands, wives, parents, children, slaves, and masters. The Christian home is to reflect your union with Christ. See, Paul's writing to them right where they are. He's addressing how it is that they can show maturity in Christ in every situation in life. This letter is gospel truth for real life. That's what it is. That's how we read it. That's how we understand it. What this letter is not, is it's not a manifesto meant to change the social order of the Roman Empire. Public change from the church was always and is always going to have to begin from the inside and slowly creep its way outward from individual Christians to the church and from the church to more people and so on as people came to know Christ. That's how God works. Isn't that always what Jesus had promised us? The kingdom of heaven is like a tiny mustard seed and it slowly 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 grows until it's this bush big enough for birds to rest in the kingdom of heaven is like a little tiny bit of yeast that works its way through the flour slowly 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 but it spreads it spreads its way through the through the lifeless dough until it becomes fragrant and ready to bake the kingdom of heaven was never meant to spread through political force during the in-between time. It was only promised to spread little by little from one person to the next as God showed his miraculous power to bring dead sinners to life in Christ. That's the gospel. So writing a letter to this little country church in the backwaters of Asia Minor and trying to enact a revolutionary upheaval of the Roman system would have been roughly equivalent to writing a letter to a family of undocumented immigrants in El Centro and asking them to reform America's healthcare system or overturn Roe v. Wade. See, that wasn't Paul's intention. Instead, his letter is simply written to ensure that this small handful of redeemed people in Colossae who have been born again into Christ, he just wants them to reflect Christ's lordship in their lives. That's all he's asking. They've put on Christ and they represent Christ now in all that they do. And what that looks like in the life of a slave is that they sincerely obey their earthly masters and fear the Lord and work for the Lord and serve the Lord. It's a reminder to them. That's what this is. It's a reminder to those people who are suffering that they're not, all of who they are is not a slave. That's just their temporary, earthly identity. In heavenly terms, they're not slaves. They're redeemed and reconciled members of the body of Christ. And so Paul reminds them of who they are in Christ. And then what does he do? He he challenges them to live out their life in Christ in the midst of their difficult circumstances. Just like every other member of Christ, even the slaves are to set their minds on heavenly things. Look at verses 23 and 24, if you still have your, your Bibles open. Colossians 3, 23. With that context in mind that you have now, Let's look back to the passage. Paul says, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. You see how this is the application at the beginning of chapter 3? Remember the beginning of chapter three, if then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seek the things that are above. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. He's saying the exact same thing. He's just saying it in the context of slavery. He's making it concrete. He says, slave, I know your life is incredibly difficult you are subject to injustice every day. To see and trust in Christ in the midst of your trials has got to be unbearable sometimes. But you've got to see that even in your earthly circumstances, your heavenly reality is more true, it is more real, and it is more everlasting. So in order to endure the trial that you are in the middle of, you need to know down to your core that all you do is for the Lord. You are representing Jesus Christ, not yourself. And he he says, you probably won't even see reward in this life. But don't ever believe that there is no reward. It's in front of you. It's It's ahead of you. It's in Christ. And when he returns, you'll be glorified with him. That's his message. And he keeps going as if all all who we are in Christ and all we have to look forward to in Christ were not enough of an encouragement. Paul doesn't stop with that. Look at what he says in verse 25. He deals with the injustice issue. He says in verse 25, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he's done. And there's no partiality. Who's the wrongdoer? The slaver. The slaver. The slaver is, the one who thinks he owns another human being and treats him accordingly. Regardless of how wealthy or powerful this person is, Paul is promising that justice will be served. We we can trust in that truth. What we need to see is that Paul is not at all condoning slavery, friends. He's anti-slavery. He's just not responding to it in the way that we would expect him to. He's acknowledging the difficulty of slavery. And as a good shepherd, what's he doing? He's counseling. Do you see how he's doing that? He's counseling the slave in the midst of her trials. He doesn't do that for the fathers or the mothers or the wives or the husbands. He only does that for the person who is enduring difficulty. He counsels them. He shepherds them. He's acknowledging the difficulty of of slavery and he's counseling them in the midst of their trials. And this is where I think the text is bridged to today. Many of you have endured unjust circumstances. You've worked for unfair bosses. You've been maligned by people you trusted. You've been cheated by people you thought would never cheat you. You've been overworked. You've been underpaid, and you have felt like in your jobs or whatever situation it was, that there was no way out. None of you have endured slavery, but you can honestly say that you have endured trials that seemed unfair and unbearable at the time. So what is the Bible's message to you? It's not Pollyanna. It's not Charlotte's Web, chin up, chin up, put a smile on your face. Everybody loves a happy face. That's not the message. The message is not try harder and it'll get better. And it's not just be a good worker and pretend that you're working for Jesus instead of the man. That's not the message. This is an identity check. Read, read this passage with all of chapter three in mind. And we've spent a lot of time in chapter three. Remember the gospel truth from the beginning of the chapter. You've died. You've died. Your life is hidden in Christ. That's our foundation. That's, that's the foundation of our identity. So all of our experiences in life from that moment on are, we are hidden in Christ. So when we're feeling attacked or oppressed or treated unfairly, our response is not to be the response of the old self, because the old self is dead. It's not fake it. It's not fight it. Our response is instead confidence in our new creation identity. You can trust You can trust that because of who you are now in Christ, that justice will one day be served. And you can trust that even right now you are hidden with Christ and he is present with you. And you can know that what you're doing in all that you do is actually in his service, not pretend. Real life, heavenly reality. Keep your mind on things above. Who are you above? You are in Christ, and so you're serving Christ. And he, at this moment, is providing for you. In the midst of difficulty, he's providing for you. As your good shepherd, the comfort of continued grace and hope that is sufficient for the trial at hand. That's what he gives you. It's an echo of Psalm 23, isn't it? Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Friend, God never promised to remove us from the valley of the shadow of death. God never promised that he would make dark, deadly valleys go away in this life. And anyone who tells you that God can make things like that go away is lying to you. The promise is this, that Jesus will be with us because we've already been purchased and redeemed by him. And because we're his, we walk out our lives, even difficult lives, in union with Jesus Christ. And all of us who are in Christ, every one of us who's trusting in Christ can take comfort We can take comfort in the fact that our Savior, whom we now walk in, has already traversed a valley infinitely deeper and greater than our own. He took upon himself all of our guilt and all of our sin, and he drank down to the dregs the wrath of God. And as Christ endured that for us, he also equips us to endure our own circumstances with faith and with joy in him, no matter, no matter what those circumstances are. That's Paul's message to slaves. But that's not the end of our passage, is it? We still have to deal with four verses, verse one, and this message to masters. What does he say? He says, masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. He does not say to release the slaves. Why not? Again, we have to think about the context of, of what's here for us. Where would they go? This is not a society where freed slaves can go and take a loan from a bank and start a business. Think about it. If they're prisoners of war, put yourself in in that context. You're a prisoner of war, you've been sold as a slave, and now you're in another part of the world that you're completely unfamiliar with. Where would you go if you're released? Your home has been conquered. And, And conquered not just like taken over, I mean burned down, raised. There is no home. Your wife and children are probably in other homes somewhere else in the world. You can't go on Facebook and find them. There, there's, if you're released, you're homeless. This is roughly equivalent to the dilemma that, that missionaries face when they're communicating the gospel to unreached people groups. Put yourself there for them. So let's transport ourselves forward a couple thousand years. You go into a jungle in the Amazon, and you're trying to communicate the gospel to a, a tribe who's never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ before. And you notice immediately that all of the families there in this tribe are polygamous, right? They're, the men have multiple wives, lots of wives. They care for them, they support them as best they can, and yet you know, because you know God's Word, you know that those marriages are not reflecting the gospel, and even if they become Christians, those marriages will not reflect the gospel. Christ didn't have multiple brides, He has one, the church. And as Christian marriages should reflect Christ, we're only to have one spouse, but you don't go to this village and and preach against polygamy hoping that they'll be safe, do you? What do you do? Even if, if you did preach that message, and if they stopped being polygamous, what have you accomplished? They'd still be lifeless sinners separated from a holy God. And what happens to the wives if you say, leave your wives and just keep one of them? What happens to those wives? They end up homeless and destitute, and their children end up without a father. So for the sake of righteousness, you've destroyed a community. Instead, instead, what our aim is, is to follow Paul's lead. And what does he do? He preaches the gospel. The gospel's always first. And, and we trust that in preaching the gospel through the proclamation of the word, We trust that the Holy Spirit brings life to sinful hearts and brings faith to Christ. And through changed people, the church is formed and the gospel begins to take root in the community. And it slowly and slowly but surely affects every aspect of life. That's the the pattern. And that's the pattern we see in Colossians, even in our culture. So think, take yourself back from the Amazon here to San Diego. Even in our culture, cohabitation is more common than marriage. Should our message to non-Christians then then be, non-Christians who are sleeping together and living together, should it be, you need to get married because you're living in sin? Is that our message to them? No, our, our message is the same as it is for everyone. God shows his love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. We first preach the gospel And then we let the Spirit do His work and trust that through continued discipleship, and there will be continued discipleship, we trust that every aspect of the life of this couple will be transformed by the lordship of Christ. And that's the approach Paul takes with the Colossians. He first communicates the gospel, who Jesus is, what has Jesus done, what does that mean for me? And then he simply tells the slave-owning masters whom he trusts belong to Christ, he says to them, treat your slaves justly and fairly. And this is something that you don't see clearly, but that word fairly comes from a word that is often translated as equals. Treat your slaves fairly with equity as equals to you. Remember in in chapter 3, verse 11, he's already taught the church that both the slave and the free are one in Christ. And so then he's just saying, let's extend that into the household, okay? Masters, you're equal to your slaves. Treat them accordingly. And in the same way that slaves are to take a heavenly mindset, they're also the masters are also to have a heavenly mindset. Look at what he says. He says to them, "Knowing, so do this, knowing that you also have a master in heaven." In other words, in Christ, master, you're a slave too. You're a slave to Christ. so don't let your earthly reality be what drives your thinking. Let your heavenly. Reality. Your heavenly identity in Christ motivate everything you do and how you treat everyone, including those who work in your home. And that's true, and yet it still seems like Paul could have said more. I'm not satisfied. And you know what? He did say more. Colossians 4 1 is not the last word on this issue to this church. When the letter to the Colossians was delivered to this church by Tychicus, another letter came along with it. Did you know that? It's the shortest of Paul's letters. And it was personally addressed to a man named Philemon. Not to the whole church, just this one man, Philemon. The context of that letter is that Philemon's slave A young man named Onesimus had stolen some money from Philemon and run away from Colossae. And by the providence of God, he and Paul cross paths as Paul's in prison. We don't know how Onesimus met Paul. We only know that he did. And what happens to people who meet Paul? (laughs) Onesimus hears the gospel from him. And he repents and he comes to faith in Christ. And as Paul gets to know him, he learns Onesimus' story. And Onesimus confesses how he has wronged Philemon, what's, what's transpired, what's taken place. Now, Paul could just keep this a secret, couldn't he? He, he could sweep this, this whole story under the, under the rug and protect Onesimus from the consequences of what has happened. But Paul knows that God has brought Onesimus to him for a reason. And Paul sees this as an opportunity to put into practice reconciliation and Christian unity. And he takes an enormous risk. And he writes a letter to Philemon. And if you want to read that, you can look on page 1,000 of your Pew Bibles. I'm going to read just a few verses from it. Philemon only has one chapter, so we'll read verses 10 through 16. Paul says, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart That you might have him back forever. No longer as a slave, but more than a slave. As a beloved brother, especially to me. But how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. Receive him as a brother. What's Paul saying to Philemon? He says, when Onesimus comes back to you, see to it that he's not a slave anymore, but your brother. And you know what Philemon did? He accepted him back as a brother. And let me tell you what happened to Onesimus. Onesimus. this this young man who was once a slave and a pagan and wanted nothing to do with God, let me show you what Jesus Christ did for him. He first of all saved him. We know that from Paul's testimony in Philemon. And even if Philemon had ignored Paul's instruction, Onesimus has been redeemed from slavery to sin and there is nothing greater that he could have received. And that's foundational to what happens next in his life. From what we can gather from early church history, including this letter we have from a man named Ignatius, one of the pastors at the church in Antioch, this is what happened next. After Onesimus returned to Colossae, he was forgiven and freed by Philemon. And he later followed Timothy. Remember Timothy? Onesimus follows Timothy to Ephesus, and Onesimus becomes one of the pastors of the Ephesian church. When Ignatius wrote to the Ephesian church, he told them to follow Onesimus' good example in the faith, from pagan to slave to criminal to Christian to brother to pastor and mentor to others, all because of the gospel of Jesus Christ working in the lives of Paul, working in the life of Odesimus and Philemon, the gospel, friends, takes root and it changes people and it changes lives and it levels out anything that would keep the church of Christ from unity. So does the Bible condone slavery? No. The Bible puts an end to slavery. The purpose of Christ's Work is to redeem us from enslavement to sin so that God would be glorified. And as we are redeemed by Christ, we are brought into Christ and we become partakers in his ministry of reconciliation, reconciling all things to God through Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit working in us. All broken things are slowly but surely made new in Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Would you pray with me?